The following podcast is banned in the state of Florida for talking about a dangerous leftist book, the Bible. Like the Bible, this podcast contains frank discussions on sensitive topics, including sex, violence, and cursing. Please proceed with caution. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you that it will be very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to the word in black and red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Micah Belong, the Wise Old Lama MB, joined today by the wonderful Snorkel, Spencer, and Elle. Thank you all for joining us today. I so appreciate each of you. This is the first time that Elle and Spencer have been joining us, so we're going to jump a little bit in. We were talking a little bit about the horseshoe, where a lot of the time when you uh, become a leftist, you also become an atheist at the same time, um, and that uh, the farther you go into leftism, oftentimes it swings back around, and suddenly you're in this place where you're like, oh, we need to have community because love is what draws us together. Oh, maybe love is the universal guiding principle of all reality. Oh, maybe that love is God. Um, <laughs> and um, So I really appreciated that part of your story. How did you find your way in that? Well, my family is Protestant, kind of uh, Eisenhower Protestant, where they're like, it's kind of proto-Christian nationalism. And like, I was a believer, like as a, like a little child and like just seeing the contradictions and hypocrisy in those sort of settings started driving me towards agnosticism and atheism pretty early, which was then definitely hammered home when I went to Catholic high school. And that's where like my atheist leftism era began. And then I went to school for anthropology and classics and sort of just through my exposure through more people, like my spirituality was brought out. And that brought me around in the horseshoe back to, um, you know, revisiting Jesus. Cause like in Catholic school, I was like, okay, I hate this, but that Jesus guy, he had some, that's, that's how I got back around here. Um, and the anarchy part comes in cause I just had the realization that, you know, the, the unjust, unjust systems that we live in, the hierarchies, are all man-made and self-imposed and like real true like loving equal living is you know when we don't oppress each other and spencer uh you grew up in a little bit different of a tradition than the one that i'm familiar with would you mind telling me a little bit about your religious background and how that influenced your political tendency so i'm a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints at this point in the last couple of years it's kind of been a meme just to say the whole thing commonly known as the Mormons, but we're, we're backing away from that. <laughs> so my, my entire life, I've, I've been a member of the, of the church. And I guess you could say I, I kind of went the other way around on the horseshoe <laughs> to leftism. You know, as reading, reading the scriptures, reading about Jesus, and feel the, the spirit, how, how I can be more like Jesus, how I can share that love. And it kind of took me around like, hey, if, if I love everyone... What does that mean for how I treat others and how I want 
I, I guess, everyone to treat each other. And that brought me around to where I am now. Well, we are very happy to have you. And we are also very happy to have our atheist comrades, I should say. This was not at all an intention to bash on atheism. There are lots of really good reasons to be an atheist. I happen to not be one, but you are very welcome here, my friends. <laughs> so, But it is an interesting uh, phenomenon among a lot of uh, Christian leftists that we, we went through that angry atheist phase and we came back out of it convinced of leftism and convinced that God has called us to it. And so that is where we're going to jump off into what we're actually reading today. Genesis 4, 1 through 26. The man Adam knew his wife Eve intimately. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain and said, I have given life to a man with the Lord's help. She gave birth a second time to Cain's brother Abel. Abel cared for the flocks and Cain farmed the fertile land. Sometime later, Cain presented an offering to the Lord from the land's crops, while Abel presented his flock's oldest offspring with their fat. The Lord looked favorably upon Abel and on his sacrifice, but didn't look favorably on Cain and his sacrifice. Cain became very angry and looked resentful. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry, and why do you look so resentful? If you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? But if you don't do the right thing, sin will be waiting at the door ready to strike. It will entice you, but you must rule over it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. When they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. The Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? Cain said, I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? The Lord said, What did you do? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You are now cursed from the ground that opened its mouth to take your brother's blood from your hand. When you farm the fertile land, it will no longer grow anything for you, and you will become a roving nomad on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Now that you've driven me away from the fertile land and I am hidden from your presence, I am about to become a roving nomad on the earth, and anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, It won't happen. Anyone who kills Cain will be paid back seven times. The Lord put a sign on Cain so that no one who found him would assault him. Cain left the Lord's presence, and he settled down the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife intimately. She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain built a city and named the city after his son Enoch. Irad was born to Enoch. Irad fathered Mehujael. Mehujael fathered Mehushael. And Mehushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives the first named Adah and the second Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the ancestor of those who live in tents and own livestock. His brother's name was Jabal. He was the ancestor of those who play stringed and wind instruments. Zillah also gave birth to Tubalcain, the ancestor of blacksmiths and all artisans of bronze and iron. Tubalcain's sister was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, listen to my voice. Wives of Lamech, pay attention to my words. I killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. So Cain will be paid back seven times, and Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam knew his wife intimately, and she gave birth to a son. She named him Seth, because God has given me another child in place of Abel, whom Cain killed. Seth also fathered a son and named him Enosh. At that time, people began to worship in the Lord's name. This is a weird passage. 
First, we have the classic story of Abel's death at the hand of Cain. And this is the moment at which violence really enters into the scene, the violence of human-on-human murder that's happening here. And we can't quite figure out what's going on. Why does Cain... Why is Cain rejected? Why is Abel accepted? Why does Cain result in murder because of this story? And in the midst of all of this, you also have this strange story where (laughs) Cain goes on to be the ancestor of the people who live in tents and own livestock and those who play instruments and the blacksmiths and all of these different (laughs) strange uh, people groups that are set up in opposition to the people of Judah who are ultimately come forward as the chosen people of God who are telling this story in the first place. Let's start here with the conversation between the Lord and Cain because we've seen established so far in the previous story that that God interacts with humanity and often humanity has this disposition of of why are you interrogating me? Like, what have I done wrong, right? And Cain has this this legal defense, this litigious argument. Am I my brother's guardian? Am I the person, am, am I the uh, power of attorney over my brother, basically, is what this is translating to. Do I have a legal responsibility to my brother? And oftentimes, we hear that in the United States, but what do we hear it in terms of? We hear is it in the Constitution, right? Is the right to good medical care in the Constitution? No. So I don't have to give it to you, right? And it is the same ludicrous nature as the Lord talking to Cain here. And what does the Lord say in response? What did you do? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. We can think about the fact that in the recession, something like 500,000 extra people died of cancer in the last Great Recession because they didn't have health care. The recession throughout the rest of the world that has universal health care did not result in the extra death of anyone because they couldn't afford health care. But in the United States, we thought uh, half a million people deserve to die because we are not going to pay for them because it's not in the Constitution. If you think about the story, you know, in the mythological sense, there's four people on the earth, Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. Like that question comes off as like the dumbest question really to God, because of, of course you are your brother's keeper. You like, you're part of a family unit that depends on one, one another. And if one of, one of you starts dysfunctioning, like the whole unit falls apart. Like you said, it, there's only four people on the earth at this point, according to the according to the narrative here: Adam, Eve, Cain, Abel. So Cain killing Abel—that's that's killing a quarter of the population of the world. That's insane. Also, that would have been absolutely devastating to the entire family. Just thinking of that as as a brother, as a father, like how devastating that would be to myself. And and I, I like to take. The whole whole story of the the first family, Adam and Eve. That's the whole whole human family. Like anyone in the world, if they lose their life at this point, do we take that the same that we would take the loss of of a sibling? Absolutely, especially when this murder is purely reactionary. Right? This is not a murder that is committed for someone's betterment. It's not a murder that's committed because someone has committed a great crime. Right? It's a murder because Cain is the second incel. Right? Adam is the first incel. He sees he sees Eve, 
and blames her for his own crime. And then Cain comes along and doesn't get what he wants again, right? He doesn't get what he wants, and so he murders the person who gets it instead. Now, I think what's so important about this story is the fact that Cain, Cain and Abel, neither of them really deserve the sacrifice, right? Neither of them deserve God's favor. It just seems entirely random. The Lord looked favorably upon Abel and his sacrifice, but didn't look favorably on Cain and his sacrifice. Why? Why was Abel favored and Cain not favored? I have a lot of thoughts on why he didn't gain uh, the Lord's favor. When I read the text, I noticed that it just kind of says a time came when Cain presented a sacrifice to the Lord. So I kind of think that Cain is already trying to like vie for the Lord's favor. So he asks basically through sacrifice and Abel is kind of just doing what his brother does and sacrifices what he has. And it kind of presents two pathways. I think the Lord is unfavorable towards farming because Cain has set up a field that can't be trampled upon, that can't be roamed with, toiling the soil like his father Adam. And then Abel is tending to a flock, building relationships with his animals. And the pastoral nature of that lifestyle lends towards, you know, no fences, no boundaries. So I think the Lord doesn't grant Cain's favor because Cain wasn't doing what he was supposed to do anyways, which is kind of reinforced by like the Lord saying, why are you angry? Why do you look so resentful? If you do the right thing, won't you be accepted? That kind of tells me that like they've been talking, they've been like trying to have a dialogue on this, but Cain is upset that like what he wants to do isn't what the Lord wants. And that kind of is like that seed in there. Yes, so Cain is creating private property, whereas Abel is perpetuating his life in the commons, right? So Cain is doing something that he knows doesn't work, right? That that doesn't seem to be the way that life is supposed to be outside of the garden, whereas Abel is actually doing something that um, seems different. It's productive, but it is communal. It is living in commonality with the land rather than just exploiting it in the same way that Cain is. Um, I also really like the thread that you that you threw out there, that Cain is trying to buy the Lord's favor, um, whereas Abel just seems like he's come and done it uh, <laughs> as well. And so uh, one of the things that is often discussed in this, that one of the madrash on this story, is that Cain presented an offering to the Lord from the land's crops, while Abel presented his flock's oldest offspring with their fat. And throughout the rest of the story of the people of Israel, there's going to be a lot of emphasis on proper sacrifice to God, that there are lots of different kinds of sacrifice, but the one that is consistently said, this is the kind of sacrifice that God wants, are sweet-smelling sacrifices to God, the burning of fat specifically, and the firstborn, that the idea that the first thing that you give is to God, and then after that, you eat the rest of it. So Abel seems to be actually living into this value. But the trouble is that Cain doesn't actually seem to be told what the expectation is. Does it strike you as fair that Cain is is not seen as favorable? The one comment I've got just related to what, what you just said is, like it, it says here, Abel presented his flock's oldest offspring. So he, he brought the first offspring. 
at that, that point, that's, that's all the offspring if it's the oldest. But for Cain, it says he just presented an offering from the land's crops. So it's not necessarily the first, like, Cain knew there was more coming. He didn't bring everything. Like, he didn't give it all up. But Abel really, like, if you're bringing the oldest offspring, you don't know there's going to be more offspring after that. You're, you're really giving everything to the Lord at that point. When your entire existence is dependent upon the Lord to not have to uh, toil the ground in this terrible way, it certainly makes sense for, to give <laughs> to give the best of what you have if there is no guarantee of the future in any way, right? And so, so often, I think as as leftists, we're stuck in this bind of like I have a life as it is, right? And right now, for the first time in in our lives, my partner and I make enough money that once we're eventually out of debt, we could actually afford to start saving money. I know, shocking. Millennials able to save money only because two of us work full time and, you know, and we have all of these privileges that a lot of people don't get. And there's that temptation to just become complacent, right? There's that temptation to just say, I've got mine I don't need to give anything else, right? I've got mine, I can hold on to it. Or if I have to give something away, I can give away whatever. I can give away the extra, right? And that seems to be what Cain is offering uh, to the Lord here. In in my line of work, we uh, we help take care of folks that don't have homes. And so a lot of the time, I have to tell people who want to donate things to us, hey, thank you for wanting to donate to us, but we can't accept that because we don't accept hand-me-downs, right? We want to treat our folks with dignity, which means that they should be getting good things, not just the things that you don't need anymore, right? We want things that are actually good for our folks, that are actually going to last them a long time, that aren't going to be thrown away immediately um, because your crap doesn't help our folks any more than it helps you. And so that is an interpretation of the story that Cain presents this offering of things that are not actually good, not actually useful, that are just the extras. Whereas Abel, I love that interpretation, Spencer, that Abel presents everything that he has, that he gives the first and he doesn't know if there's going to be a second, but gives it anyway, because that is what is necessary to build the kind of world he wants to see happen. We're going to go back to the fact that Cain is an incel here, and Cain Cain gets pissed off at this, right? Cain gets so upset that he takes his brother out into a field and murders him. And this is the world's first reactionary, right? Abel has something good for him. He's the younger brother. In this society, the older brother is supposed to be the best, right? We just talked about the fact that the oldest offspring is a a real sacrifice because you don't know if there's going to be another one. It's a little bit like the logic of an heir and a spare, right? The first one you're really, really excited for, and then the second one is like, yay, we get this one too. But the whole kingdom isn't isn't waiting on the tip of their toes to see whether or not the, the kid is born, right? But the oldest is supposed to be the one that is given the lion's share, that's supposed to be the favored one. And instead, God is choosing the lesser person, Abel, who is supposed to be lower down. And so Cain doesn't get exactly what he wants, and so he murders his brother. Talk to me about Cain being the first reactionary politician. Cain's reactionary because, like, rather than, like, asking God what those expectations that Abel met and did well at, he decided to take Abel out. (laughs) So like what that is the definition of a reactionary. (laughs) Why improve myself? I'll just hurt the other person. (laughs) And how do you think that relates to our modern politics? (laughs) 
I identify as a woman and there's just something I've noticed in my interactions with like people who are really reactionary in politics, really guys, uh, men, but like a lot of their like reactionary in politics comes from some sort of like suppressed anger and rage and like perceived slight in their own lives versus like the systemic injustices that are affecting them and are actually causing their misery. Yeah, like why does Cain get angry at Abel instead of angry at God, right? Like <laughs> God is big enough, she can take it. But Abel is is this innocent person, right, who who gets murdered in in, in the prime of his life. You know, it's it's probably from that like God is the authority. So of course Cain the authoritarian can't take his anger out on their authority. They have to take it out on somebody beneath them or just near them. It's almost like Cain are the cops, right? <laughs> Where the cops are uh, beholden to the system of authority because they gain power through the system of, of authority and so are unwilling to rise up and actually reject the leadership of people who are hurting them, right? But instead are totally in favor of the people who are oppressing them just as much as they oppress others, right? And so it results in them murdering innocent Abels all over the place in the same kind of reactionary politics. And cops protect private property, and Cain invented that. It all connects. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm Canadian, I'm in Canada. Remind me a bit of the discussion around uh, immigrants and housing that comes up sometimes here. So one thought that could have been going through Cain's head here is, oh, I, I offered a sacrifice. Abel offered a sacrifice. God only accepted one. I guess there's only room for one one sacrifice. So then, then the discussion uh, around housing and immigration sometimes is, oh, well, there, there's only so much housing. We can't have all these people coming in. There's only only so much supply. There's only so much of this housing that's been given us by God, I guess you could say. <laughs> when really, like, there's there's the opportunity we can we can make more. Like, the Lord has room for more more sacrifices to be given to Him. I guess you could say more love to give. He's He's not just for one person. We don't have to limit ourselves just to those that are those that are here. Yeah. I have a small friend that I often take with me to, to church. And a lot of the time when we are going to receive the Eucharist, uh, my small friend is just so eager to get up there and to kneel and to accept the Eucharist. And I have to remind my small friend all the time that there is always more grace. There is always enough grace that is coming. And it doesn't matter what part of the Eucharist you get or you know anything else, all of Jesus is there in every morsel, right? And that's something that I never really understood until I began to believe in the literal incarnation of God present within the Eucharist, that there is always enough grace there for all of us. And that has revolutionized my understanding of many of the things that I think about in the world. When I look at things from a perspective of there is only so much to go around, then I can fall into reactionary politics because I can say, oh, that refugee is going to come in here and take my job, or that immigrant is going to come here and take my spot in university. You know, all those sort of things. 
And that comes from this concept of the landed class, right? When you have a boundary, when you have a border, when you have a fence that has to lock in what you own versus what everyone else owns, then there is, of course, a limited amount of that. Because you might see the mountain on that side and the river on this side, and there's only so much to go around in that land. Whereas if you're looking at things from a perspective of someone who lives in community with nature, who lives a nomadic lifestyle, that lives in a way that that is not owning the land, but is instead living in as part of the land, if you're part of that landed class, you don't see that there's ever enough for everyone. Because if there's enough for two of you, that means that somebody else is stealing some of yours, right? And you're not getting your fair share. But instead, we could see there is more than enough for all of us. Now, when we are nomads, and we are looking around, and we are seeing that a couple of selfish people are taking most of the land, then we can say, well, actually, there's not enough for you to have everything and the rest of us to have nothing. And that is the fundamental difference between looking at things from a perspective of scarcity versus looking at things from abundance. We can recognize as leftists that the billionaires and trillionaires are stealing our wages, right? They're only getting their surplus capital, their surplus profits, because they're stealing them from us. Everything that the landed gentry take is land that the nomad cannot live on. And so they slowly encroach on the nomad's lifestyle until nomadic living is no longer possible and you have to become landed as well or you starve. And that is exactly what's happening to us. We, Because so much has been stolen from us, because so much has been taken away, we are not able to live in communal kinds of living anymore because you have to participate in the interests of the landed class in order to survive in this society. I would like to at least challenge a little bit that like we as groups of people can come together and begin to live more communally to provide more of a safe harbor against capitalism. And while it's not like a clean exit or anything, it's safety in numbers. Thank you for that. I don't want people to come away from this episode thinking that we shouldn't be forming communes. Uh, we should be forming communes, and we should be lovingly inviting everyone to come join us in those, because in those communes, we have more than enough. When we all are able to share our resources, we have more than enough. You know, I, I sit here and think about uh, the bills that we pay, right? If we just had... In, in my house, it's a three-bedroom house. If we just had a third person who came and lived with us, we could... We could have so much more. We could begin to pay for a fourth person to come live with us or a fifth person, you know. <laughs> but because we are atomized into these family units that are seen as their own individual empires, as their own kingdoms that have to be upheld, we're not able to build that sort of communalism. So, so thank you for that pushback. I appreciate it. Now, one of the interpretations that we have to talk about is an interpretation that has deeply influenced a lot of American racial politics particularly American, but throughout the world. But it, it found a special place here in the United States because the sign that was given to Cain played a very specific role. And Starkle, tell me more about that role. It's a pretty widely used justification in the United States throughout its history for all kinds of just horrible things, racism, white supremacy, slavery, the entire Atlantic slave trade, like you said, it's definitely not confined just to the United States, and it does extend back to before the United States was its own independent country. Ever since the the first colonizers came here, and I'm, I have not done actually any research into how this actually pertained in 
Europe or other places in the world. I'm sure it did and was used as a justification for racism before the colonizing of the United States and the Americas. But in general, it was used as an excuse. The idea is that the mark that God gave to Cain was to have dark skin or black skin. And that was kind of contradicting what the Bible says rather than it being a sign of you should not mess with this guy. You know, God is having mercy on this guy. Do not hurt him. Do not seek revenge. It was interpreted more as a punishment when his punishment was just to be a nomad, to wander. They interpret the mark of Cain to be the actual punishment uh, along with darker skin comes with intellectual inferiority and spiritual inferiority. And it allowed a lot of really heinous things to be done in the name of either they deserve it or like benevolent racism where, oh, well, we're saving them from this primitive existence in Africa because that's their punishment, having the mark of Cain. And it's it's hard to even repeat those kinds of ideas because they're just so ugly and awful. And I know this absolutely does not apply to every church in the United States. There are plenty of wonderful, inclusive churches and movements in the United States history, and plenty of Christian abolitionists were involved in fighting against chattel slavery and segregation, the Jim Crow laws, and the systemic racial injustice that we still have around today. But I have a lot of personal experience with these kinds of ideas and this harmful ideology. The kinds of churches I grew up going to definitely use this as an excuse for why black people and people of color can be saved, but they are inherently not saved. And so colonialism is a good thing. The slave trade was a good thing because it brought people to a place where, sure, they're oppressed and murdered and enslaved, but they might end up becoming saved. So really, we're doing them a kindness. And it's it's just completely taking the idea of God having mercy on Cain even after he committed murder. Um, and flipping it to people still deserve to suffer because what we're deciding this mark actually means. And, you know, the the fact of the matter is that, that if the people actually read the Bible consistently, if they read it literally, if they read on just two stories later, right? We read the story of Noah. And what happens in the story of Noah? Everyone gets wiped out. So there are no descendants of Cain that are currently walking around the earth, right? If you take the story literally and the story of Noah literally. But instead, this theological perversion is, again, taken into this particular story, is extricated out without context, without discussion of what the sign could actually possibly be in order to uphold the superiority, the false superiority of one people group over another. And it's absolutely disgusting. It's ludicrous. It's the same discussion of patriarchy that we had in episode episode one and two, where the only way that you can really come away from that story and think that women are supposed to be lower than men or that any genders are supposed to be lower than any other gender is if you take the fallen nature as the way that things are supposed to be. This story does not justify racism. Racism uses the story because it's a convenient excuse, just like any ideology will be used to perpetuate hatred against others unless we stop it at its source. What's interesting here is that we see uh, this first murder is directly tied to the development of the state, right? But when we see, again, that land being divided among people and nomads being pushed out further and further to, to the periphery, we see that the person with the most land or the person who has the most power is the person who ends up being able to declare themselves the king, right? Declare themselves the ruler and that leadership 
leads to a hierarchy that ultimately hurts people and ultimately causes uh, the downfall of people. So a really interesting point here, talking about that establishment of the city and the perpetuation of violence, is L points out that uh, Lamech here seems to declare themselves even above the power of God. Cities back in the day, they were their own kingdoms. They were city-states. So when Cain is told he's going to be a nomad and wander to the earth, he doesn't do that. He walks around, finds that nothing will grow for him, and then settles down and creates a city. And through that, like, I think it's interesting, the sort of descendants of him include blacksmiths and artisans of bronze and iron, which would indicate like industry, but also probably warfare. Probably violence is inherent to that. And that leads into the family line of Cain going down to Lamech, who is like calling back towards the promise that God made Cain and only Cain about if anyone touches you, I'll pay you back. Lamech says he himself, he's already killed a man for wounding him, a boy for hitting him. If anyone touches me, like me, he, Lamech, then Lamech says he's got the power to inflict like that violence and vengeance upon that person. Thus kind of proclaiming himself like I have more power than God almost because he's multiplying the seven to 77. That's just how I take it. That's an absolutely brilliant observation. And it it comes back to this idea that Cain's violence begets violence, right? That Cain goes out and murders his brother. And so he becomes the ancestor of Lamech who says, if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back 77 times as hard, right? I killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. I killed a kid because they hit me. Oh, what does that sound like? Maybe the kid threw a water bottle at him, so he deserved to kill the kid, right? You know, that that sort of uh, logic is what's happening here. And what happens? Lamech is also the ancestor of blacksmiths and the artisans of Bron Iron, who are exactly what you're talking about, warrior people. Now, you, future listener, Uh, You have not yet heard episode five, where we're going to talk a lot more about the Nephilim, who are described as the origin, uh, the the originators of bronze and iron, which in the Jewish Midrash is a code for these are the people who make the things to kill you. And that is exactly what's going on here, is that this violence is begetting violence to beget violence to beget violence. And I think what's so interesting here is that God, God sets this up in order for there not to be violence. So I I found it interesting that the Lord's response to this murder wasn't to also get rid of Cain, clear the world of murderers. But like Cain says here, my punishment is more than I can bear. And anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord says it won't happen. Anyone who kills Cain will be paid back seven times. So the Lord puts a sign on Cain and basically marks him to say, hey, even though this guy's killed someone, like we're not going to meet murder with murder. We're not going to meet wrongdoing with more, more harm. It just struck me as quite a sign of mercy from the Lord and kind of against the, I, I don't know if this, this phrase exists in other Christian denominations, the, the natural man. So what we say in my church, just your, your natural instinct, the natural man, the nat- natural man response would be 
you hurt me, I go hurt you. The Lord says, no, we're, we're not going to do that. We're, we're not going to go with uh, the natural human response that Cain killed Abel, we need to kill Cain. That just leads to that infinite loop, I guess. So there's, there's quite an argument for non-resistance here. I definitely agree with Spencer um, about the Lord's reaction being uh, not reactionary. Like, I, I kind of tried to put myself in God's shoes. Like, what what would you do if you came home and, like, one of your kids had killed the other one? Like, I'm sure God was going through a lot, trying to, like, figure out what, like, this is the first murder. Like, how would you react to just that happening if it was the first one? It's a lot of mercy for God, I think, to take Cain out of that situation with Adam and Eve because, of course, it would be hard on them. And God doesn't want to kill Cain. He loves them. So what do you do, like, if not set a banishment, really? And, like, that kind of does seem the most merciful choice because it's not like roaming isn't what we were supposed to do anyways, what Cain was supposed to do anyways, like with God maybe trying to push him towards pastoralism anyways. Yeah, and I think that there's such a contrast between the way that Lamech responds and the way that God responds, right? That Lamech is just minorly hurt by by a man and a boy, right? And he results he responds by murdering. And God loses Abel, who God loves, right? The the one that God favored, right? And God loses them and responds not by doing violence, not by doing the kind of violence that kings set up as, if you hurt me, then I'm going to hurt you 77 times as much. But instead, God, the ultimate king, the ruler of the universe, is the one who says, no, I will I will enact mercy upon you, right? Um, and I think ultimately it imbues a value that for us as anarchists who want to see an anarchist utopia in the future, a vision for what we should do to people who who violate our understandings and our covenants and our community guidelines is that murder is not the just way, right? That oftentimes it is it is banishment, it is separation, it is creating the kinds of healthy boundaries that are necessary to help healing, right? Adam and Eve need those boundaries to be able to heal, but also they don't need to lose another kid. Right? You know, can you imagine how devastating it would be to lose one kid and then immediately lose the other one because of what they did to your other kid? You know, I can't imagine it. It is important to remember that this story is a fiction, right? It is a myth. It is a story that um, has some disjointed natures. And what's really interesting here is that the story emphasizes the existence of one human family, but it also has a bunch of non, like a, a bunch of people who are not part of that family. Like, where does Cain's wife come from, right? And and where does Seth's wife come from? Are they are they all his sister? No, there's no reason to think that in the story. There is good reason to think that there were other humans around in the story. And so, you know, but it emphasizes the fact that we are all related to each other, that we are all one human family. And especially after Noah, that there is just one human family that continues after that, right? And the emphasis there is is so interesting that it happens again and again throughout the scriptures. There is one human family, even if we are divided among all these the things. And it goes back to the point that Spencer was making earlier, to the fact that there is this one human family. And so if we do anything to anyone else, we're affecting someone that ultimately is connected to us, that is made in the image of God, 
just like we are. And when we hurt those folks, then we are diminishing the image of God within ourselves just as long as we diminish the image of God within them. And so this line really here is is just the epitome of, I think, our leftist values. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. That is something that we need to say to every politician that we see, every oil executive and every pharmacy executive, you know, all of these people who stand in positions of power who are constantly harming those who have less than they do, we need to remind them, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, is what God says to them. That God is a God of abundant mercy. But that doesn't mean that God does not come with banishment, right? It doesn't mean that you get to do whatever the hell you want to the people that God loves and think that you get away with it in the end. I, I don't believe in a hell that lasts forever. But I think it's hard to say that there is no hell at all because I think that there has to be some accountability for the ways that people have treated one another in this world. And I don't think most people are going there. But I do think that the folks who have spilt blood in the name of making an extra buck are definitely going to be there. All right, friends. Thank you all again for being a part of this. I really appreciate you being here. And please come back. We would love to have you. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us. We so appreciate you being a part of us. Now, past Micah, take it away. If you're interested in discussing this episode, religion, or general leftism, please join our Discord channel found in the show notes. We host a Bible study every Friday at 12-ish p.m. Eastern Time to discuss this week's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash the word in black and red. Your support helps me pay our amazing editor and relieves my guilty conscience of exploiting someone's free labor. If you would like to appear on the show or reach us for any reason, you can reach us at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. Thank you, past Micah. Now go and say to the rich, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Shalom. Is Kane Bigfoot?